Hello everyone, this is the Melon and Pearls podcast. You are listening to our very first episode. In today's episode, the inaugural and get out the vote episode, Yvette Schmitter and Erica Schollers introduce themselves and get right down to business and discuss the upcoming election and the importance of voting. We will continue the importance of voting discussion in our second episode because it's just that important. Join us in the conversation. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Melon Pearls podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Yvette Schmitter. And I'm Erica Schollers. So happy you're joining us today. This show is all about helping you visualize your best self and showing up as her. You know, Erica and I believe you are the only one in control of your life, how you live it, and then ultimately what you do with it. I personally believe the meaning of life is to find your purpose, live it, and then pay it forward. Pay it forward. You know, that's something that's very important to me as well. When I go through what is important in life, I think about paying it forward and it's very high on my list. You know, I also think about that quote regarding the dash. Have you heard of that quote? No. Tell me about it. Okay. So the dash is the time between the day you were born and the day you die. And it's not the date on either end that counts, but how you use your dash. Mm. I truly hope that this podcast will help people think more about their dash and what they're going to do with it. Nice. You know what? This is so exciting. (laughs) You know, we've been told we needed to do something like this for a long time, but you know what? A pandemic will surely help you get your life. Absolutely. So for the last few months, Eric and I have been planning for this very moment. So now, here we are, sitting in front of mics and full of excitement. So you know what? Let's just go ahead and get started. Let's get started. Let's get started. Let's get started. Okay. We are at a pivotal point in history. Indeed. We have the ability and collective power to turn seeing a man, you know, slowly murdered by a police officer into a revolution. And you know the only way we can do that? Is by voting. Eric and I will start off with a little bit about ourselves and then we'll move into how we voted, what that experience was like, and then we'll go into the importance of voting. And the only way that we are gonna make a change today is if each and every one of you vote. So, now, I have the pleasure to introduce my girl, my bestie, and one of the best people that I've ever met in my whole whole, whole entire life, (laughs) my esteemed co-host, Erica Scholl. Oh my goodness. Well, hello everyone. When I tell you that I am excited about this podcast, I am really excited and a little nervous too. You know, those who know me well know that I love to have discussions regarding a myriad of topics and I love to hear different points of view. However, this is different. As much as I am an extrovert, I am an introvert. And this podcast takes me a little out of my comfort zone. But growth does not occur when we're comfortable, right Yvette? Totally not. So let me tell you a little bit about myself. I was born in Costa Rica and emigrated to the U.S. when I was a little girl. I grew up in Bed-Stuy and Bushwick, Brooklyn, when they were not trendy folks. Mm. And I went to school in downtown Brooklyn, which is where I went to high school and college in New York City. So my first language was Spanish. Hola, mi gente. Hola, hola. (laughs) And I learned English in school. I remained bilingual thanks to my familia. When I was in middle school, I was sent back home for immersion sessions. And I put immersion in air quotes, folks, so that I would not forget Spanish. And let me say, my first immersion session was not fun. But once I made friends, I loved every summer I spent in Costa Rica. And those are some of my fondest memories. 
Like many immigrant families, we came to the U.S. in order to live a better life and have exposure to new opportunities. My family moved back to Costa Rica many years ago, and I try to visit as often as I can. I am a proud Afro-Latina, and yes, colorism does exist. Maybe a, a discussion for future podcasts, don't you, Beth? I think so. I think so. <laughs> I am a product of divorced parents and was raised by my mother and my mother's side of the family. I don't have a relationship with my father and for many years that totally bothered me. And it probably impacted a lot of the relationships with males that I had when I was younger. I didn't even know that this was an issue until I took a good look at myself and wondered why these relationships weren't working out. Trust me, it wasn't only me. I'm not victim blaming myself. They played a part too. My lack of of relationship with my father is a chapter that I had to close myself. And was that the right thing? I don't know, but I think I did the best I could. And I might still have some remnants, but I've come to terms with a lot. I was raised by strong women to be a strong woman, and I am grateful for that. We struggled, but seeing my mom, grandma, and aunts work hard and struggle and persevere taught me the value of the struggle and how that is a test of character. You know, we didn't have much growing up, at least when I was growing up, right? But I never knew that. They tried to give me what they could, and I'm very grateful for that. Many parents say that they want their kids to do better than they did, and my mom dedicated herself to that, and my family provided that support. I am truly the personification of it takes a village to raise a child because my village was my family, an extended family. By trade, I'm a project management professional in the financial services industry. And some say I take that, you know, to my home life too, but we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) And I've worked in the program management space for over 15 years. I'm married to an amazing husband for almost 13 years. And I will say that having his support throughout these years on all my endeavors is priceless and has been priceless. Whew. That was a whole lot. Yeah, it was not <laughs> But now I want to take the opportunity to introduce someone I truly admire. Her Instagram handle has Boss Lady as part of her name, and she is truly a boss. Not because of the moves she makes, but because of who she is. One of the realest, smartest, and kindest people I know. Here is my co-host, Yvette Schmitter. Oh, you know, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your journey and, of course, the warm introduction. All right. Well, a little bit about me. Erica and I have been friends for a very long time. And I think, you know, I have told her most of everything. And I think what I'm going to share with her and the rest of everyone else is going to be a little bit enlightening. So in order to give you context, I'm going to start from the very beginning with my grandmother, the matriarch of the family who was an angry, mean, bitter, but a severely deeply religious Southern woman who actually reveled in inflicting emotional and physical pain on others. She had four children, two boys and two girls, one of which was my mother. So in the late 60s, my grandmother migrated kids in tow to the north, to New Jersey, Garden State, uh, yeah, for better opportunities. Um, My grandmother, I remember she was built like a brick house. She had more leg than a bucket of chicken. You know, very high prominent cheekbones, just beautiful, mm. striking woman. And she was extremely smart. You know, she could have easily been an entrepreneur. But, you know, growing up and living in a culture of racism and discrimination and inequality, you know, she could only get work as a domestic. 
cleaning white people's houses. Mm. So today, I understand a little bit, I a little bit understand where some of her anger and discontent came from because, you know, there is something that happens to a person who knows deep down inside that they are so much than, more than their current opportunities allow them to be. You know, all that anger and discontent like bubbled up inside her into rage and hate. As a result, she raised her children in a poor and physically abusive household where my mother was told the only way she could leave is if she got married. Wow. So she did mm -hmm. at 17. That man she married was my father. He was a college graduate. You would think that this would be the perfect beginning of a nice ending for a story. Uh, no. We lived in a two-story, four-bedroom colonial house in an all-white neighborhood. Middle-class neighborhood in New Jersey. Although my parents were legally married for 25 years before they got divorced, my father actually left the house when my brother was six and I was five years old. To this day, I do not have any memories of or a relationship with my father. I grew up in pure survival mode in my house, single parent household now, where the adage of, you know what I mean, I'm, you know what I'm about to say, Erica, mm -hmm. children are seen but not heard, not heard at Yo, all. that ruled. I was not allowed nor provided, you know, the freedom to have a voice or my own ideas. And if I did, it came with abuse. It was a household ruled by fear and emotional cruelty. All the while, my mother was continually telling us and anyone within the earshot who would listen to her, she wanted her children to have it best. She wanted her children to have it better than she did. And every time she'd say that, I, would, I was just like, I can't imagine what her childhood must have been like if she thinks how she's treating us is better. So as a result, I just became an unquestioning, voiceless, obedient being with no self-esteem or self-worth. From an early age, I knew if I didn't want to get beat, I had to do whatever my mother said. She said, go left. I went left. She said, go right. I go right. She said, sit. I sit really fast. <laughs> and, you know, I, it's, I struggled for a very long time. And when you're, when you're in survival mode and you're young, you don't have, you know, that good aunt or good cousin or that neighbor who sees the, the hell that you're living in and try to help you. Without that, I basically figured out the only way that I could survive is with education. Education. Educational achievement. So that's where I put all of my effort and energy. So by the time I was in grade school, I was at the top of my class. I don't know if they do this today since everything is like now all virtual, but gold stars, mm -hmm. you know, teachers like to put gold stars in the picture. I was a gold star collector. I was just top of my class. Always, always, always had to be really, really, really perfect mm -hmm. from an educational perspective. And that today I look back and I understand why and where my drive for excellence came from. It came from that. And if you peel back the layer a little bit deeper is that I did that because I was thinking maybe if I get all these gold stars, maybe if I got an A or accomplished this or that, maybe, just maybe, She'd love me, or at least be proud of me, at a minimum. As the years progressed, you know, I just started accumulating all these awards and accolades. But not only did my mother not love me, but as a result of striving for excellence instead of pride, 
my mother, as well as the rest of my family, just ostracized me for being too smart, too educated. You know what? I never told you this, Erica, but my brother actually said to me, why do you talk like you're white? Wow. I've gotten that too at times. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's so sad. Um, instead of pride and support for all of my achievements and education, my striving against who they think I should and was supposed to be generated resentment and anger. I literally had no one in my corner, but I continued to strive. That drive for academic excellence propelled me through high school, undergrad, graduate school, and even to marrying my first husband. For me, I had to do. I had to do something in order to be loved. And love was conditional because I was unlovable for just being me, just coming to the table with me. So seven years after my divorce, I literally hit an emotional wall where I truly started to take stock of my life and the people in it. You know, after years of therapy, therapy is good people, we'll talk about that later, but after years of therapy, for the first time, I was able to see me and who I saw, I really liked, you know, loved. No longer did I see myself as unlovable, you know, stupid, ugly, burdensome, all those things my mother had led me to believe. You know, I like me. I like my story, the bruises, hills, valleys. All of that makes me who I am today. I'm happy and proud of the person I, I turned into. I really am. And even the really tough spots. Today, I'm newly happily married <laughs> to a man who adores me and reminds me every day that I'm more to him than he could have ever dreamt of. I'm a serial entrepreneur and now I'm an executive at Amazon where I'm, I'm literally provided a platform to continue to encourage and help every brown girl know that it's okay to take the road less traveled and encourage her to have the courage to go where there is no road and inspire her to blaze her own trail. So what I know for certain, everything that I've been through and experienced, I know that I'm brave and perfect and made of magic and resilience. Wow, very compelling. And you know, there, there's some you know, similarities to what you've mentioned and some things resonated with me when you talked about your grandmother working for white people. When my grandmother first came to this country, I don't think I've ever told you this, she, that was her first job. Mm. That, that was her first job, you know, and, and there's something to be said, you know, when you have someone who's strong, you know, have that kind of strong personality and, and you're in a, a domicile type of, of environment where, you know, who knows how you're treated, right? Yeah. So, and what that does to you. So I, I can totally resonate with that. I think the other thing that resonates with me is when you ended your your um, description, you know, your, your overview of your, of your life and, and you talked about making sure that every brown girl has an opportunity um, to see what she has and what she has to offer. I think that's important and I feel like that's something that we can do in the positions that we have and the things that we do at our places of employment to work in black resource groups or, or, or any group that we can provide that, that kind of um, exposure and, and understanding that someone that looks like them can be in those types of positions. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, we've talked about this before and I constantly remind my leadership at Amazon is that if they don't see it, it's not a possibility for them. It's like, doesn't even, it doesn't even register. Right. And I said, being an executive Amazon, 
does a great amount of good for you as a company because I'm able to sit on plat, you know, platforms and do presentations and speak to large groups of people to be able to show a little girl out there mm-hmm. that being an executive Amazon is possible because I'm here. Right. Because I'm here. Right. You know, and it just opens the it opens the floodgates for Amazon to be able to bring in that diverse talent that you say you want to bring in okay. because if they don't see me or right. a person of color how can you a one person of like how can they even think that this is even a remotely a possibility and not only is it my job to let them know that this is a possibility this is an option if you choose it but when they get here that this environment at amazon they are able to thrive that they able to excel and they have the support they can be their complete authentic self from the rooter to the tutor, there is no there is no cover that they need to put on when they get here from nine to five, and then take it off when they leave Amazon. You come in as you be, you leave as you be. Agreed, and so. I and I feel the same way. And I go recruiting for my company as well, and and that's my main tenant that they need to be able to see someone that looks like them. So I, I think that that is very important, and it probably should be a topic for one of our podcasts. Yes, just, just yes, yes, just, just, just oh, saying. Okay. okay, so we've talked about ourselves, we've shared ourselves with you, and we wanted you to get to know us, but we want to now pivot to something that's very, and I say very, can I say it one more time? Very. Very important to us, and that's voting. As we all know, the upcoming election is in a little over two weeks, and this is a pivotal time in our country, and we have the power to make a difference. I know there are people out there saying that we don't, but people, we do, and don't let the media, don't let others, don't let celebrities, don't let anyone tell you that you don't have the power. My question to you is, what are you going to do with that power? You're powerful. You may not... Feel it or believe it, but trust me, trust and believe, you are. Each and every one of us is powerful. Indeed. Each and every one of us is powerful. And when I remember the first time that I voted, I was stoked. I was like, yes, I was truly excited to cast my vote, you know, and you can kind of think why. Being, you know, how I grew up, you know, my upbringing, not being able to have my own voice, make my own choices, you know, having to be the obedient person, my first time I voted, it was enlightening to me. It was like I was powerful because my choice, my choice, not my mother's choice, not my brother's choice, not my father's choice, not my family's choice, my choice that it mattered. It literally mattered. And I, I was just, I was stoked because that first time for voting for me, I literally felt like my voice was being heard. Me was being heard. And I've never missed an election. I've voted every opportunity that there is to vote. I do it. So today I literally think back to my grandmother and the millions of other African Americans who were not allowed to vote, barred from voting actually. And I remember that she was so traumatized, we could say traumatized, um, and exhausted and demoralized from her experience with racism and everything that comes with it, inequality and discrimination, that when she died at 78, she never voted. She died never casting a vote, never. Never going to a polling station, never registering, never doing that. 
And that's, to me, that's so sad. It's, it's extremely sad. It, it is extremely sad. And you know, I'm going to admit, I didn't think much about voting when I received the privilege to vote. And I do mean it's a privilege, like you said. There are people that have died for this. So many people that, that have fought for this. And I didn't realize the responsibility and power that I had in my possession. And to be honest, I don't think I took it seriously. And I don't think I knew enough. I know that might sound like an excuse, but I don't think I did. You know, in school, we're taught civics, but really, what do we remember about that? Nothing. And even in my young adulthood, I only thought about the presidential election. I didn't think about the elections for mayor, governor, judges, sheriff, district attorney, you know, and the impact that they have. And I should have been thinking about these, these particular elections because they directly impact me and those in my community. And I'm so happy that I woke up one day and realized just the importance that they have. And I take that very seriously as well. You know, you mentioned civics and you only know what you know. Exactly. And you don't know what you don't know. And the sad and scary thing is, is that most education institutions teach the watered down white person's version of the Amer of American history. True. American history. And even some of the things that they pat themselves on the back for, still not even covered. Mm-hmm correctly so let's go back and cover a little bit of history and let's start with the civil war amendments do you know what the civil war amendments are nope see so the civil war amendments are the amendments that begin with the 13th amendment that started in 1865 and end with the 15th amendment in 1870 so collectively the 13th 14th and 15th amendments are called the civil war amendments and these three amendments in their own way tried to ensure equality for African-Americans in the South after the Civil War. But contrary to what everybody believes, the 15th Amendment does not, and I'm going to double down on that, does not grant anybody the right to vote. Wow. Okay. Nobody. Okay. No one. What it does is outlaw discrimination of voting based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Yes. That is so interesting. I'm sorry. You had me pausing for a second. I'm like, <laughs> what? You just, wow. Okay. And, and I do think that it's important that we remember this history because I can tell you, I don't remember. I don't remember learning that in school. I don't remember it being stressed as being so important. But I have started doing some research. And, and one part of history that I found very intriguing is the women's suffrage movement and the role of African-American women in that movement. You know, we just recently celebrated 100 years since that movement, right? So let's talk a little bit about the suffrage march that was held in March of 1913. And this was the first suffragist parade in Washington, D.C. And it was organized by the National American Women's Suffrage Association. White people. Okay. White people. Okay. It was also the first large organized march on Washington for political purposes. About 60 or so African-American women participated in the 1913 Women's Suffrage Parade. And that included women from Delaware, Illinois, Michigan, and New York, as well as Washington, D.C. Brave women. Ah, totally. And the first members of the newly founded Delta Sigma Theta sorority were there, and this was their first act as a sorority. 
Now, I want to talk about two African-American women that stood out to me during this time as I was reading this history. And they are Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell. So listen to this. Okay. On the day of the parade, Ida B. Wells Barnett, which was a married name, and other black women arrived to the march with the Illinois delegation. And they were immediately advised as women of color to march in the back. Get in the back. As to not upset the Southern delegates. Don't want to make sure those people okay. <laughs> okay, crazy. So Walls Barnett refused and she argued, and I quote, either I go with you or not at all. I am not taking this stand because I personally wish for recognition. I am doing it for the future benefit of my whole race. So can we say doing it for the culture? Doing like, it for the culture. Like she was. She initially left the scene, but she returned. She returned very quickly and marched alongside with her own Illinois delegation. And she was even supported by her white co-suffragists. And this event received massive newspaper coverage and shed light on the reality for African-American participation in politics. Isn't that intriguing? Totally. 1913, someone was thinking about you. Exactly. You. You're not even born. Parents probably not even born. Not even a blip. Right. Some, but someone was thinking about you. And thinking about a legacy. That is so important. And the second person I want to talk about, which I mentioned before, is Mary Church Terrell. And she's one of the founders of the National Council of Negro Women and a founding member of the NAACP. She also actively embraced women's suffrage, which she saw as an essential part to elevate the status of black women and consequently the entire race. She actively campaigned for black women's suffrage. She even, get this, she even picketed the Wilson White House with members of the National Women's Party for the right to vote for women. Terrell fought for women's suffrage and civil rights because she realized that she belonged to the only group in this country that has two such huge obstacles to surmount. And this, these are her words, both sex and race. So these women were trailblazers and greatly assisted in the movement, even while fighting for a right that they as black women, I'll say it again, they as black women would not have for many years to come. Many, 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 many. So our sister, Mary Church Terrell, picketed the <laughs> Wilson White House, right. right? So I don't know if they had a change of heart or they saw the light, whatever it was. But in 1918, President Woodrow Wilson passed the Women's Suffrage Amendment for white women mm -hmm. to be able to vote. So it was ratified in 1870. Well, you remember I said white women. African-Americans were still denied the right to vote for a whole host of reasons, especially in the southern states. For example, like the poll tax and literacy tests. It wasn't until the 1965 passage of the Voting Rights Act, which Martin Luther King Jr. was instrumental in bringing to law, was that provided and applied the nationwide prohibition against the denial or abridgment of the right to vote on literacy tests and it's on a national basis. There's a whole host of other provisions um, that were included in that act that literally were enforcement provisions that targeted those countries, specific, those, sorry, those uh, states specifically in the South um, where Congress believed the potential for discrimination would be the greatest. Now, we're talking about back in 1965 we have been talking about people being denied or making it very difficult for them to vote, and it's 2020. 
still a hot topic of today. So I mention that because that Voting Rights Act of 1965 created such an opportunity for black people to vote, men and women to vote, so much that it was a statistical impact, so much that black people voting was five times greater than prior to the enactment of the 1965 um, Voting Rights Act. So now there's two provisions within this Voting Rights Act. One is it provides um, a ruling that states just can't ultimately just change, you know, the laws about voting without approval from the Attorney General of the United States or a district court in the District of Columbia. So they couldn't just willy-nilly just make a change. The second one was the enforcement of that where they literally had auditors go in. So now we have this, this, enact, this act in place, these two provisions, and like I said, once these examiners were there and conducting all the registration, you know, black voter registration increased significantly. The Voting Rights Act itself, as a whole, has been called the civil, the, sorry, the single most effective piece of civil rights legislation ever passed by Congress. Wow. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And, you know, we've been fighting. We've been fighting for 150 years on this particular topic. And we still continue to fight today. You know, I, I mean, I think for black people, African Americans, we've been fighting since we got here in 1619. We've yeah. been fighting for that long. We you know, um, our struggle is the same, but with different flavors. Absolutely. And um, so, again, that's another topic. Right. So, I mentioned those two provisions, um, those two key provisions in the 1965 uh, Voters' Right Act. So that was Section 4 and Section 5. Well, 2013, Supreme Court struck both, both provisions down. So basically, the crib note version of their ruling is the provisions that were made back then don't really fit today's times. So they're gone. So if you take away the ruling that you can't make a change, as well as the enforcement of that, now states are just free, which they have been for years, to do whatever they want to do. There, the Supreme Court said, you know, Section 4B is unconstitutional because the formula that was used, you know, to determine coverage was based on data that was at that time in 2013 40 years old. So, it's, it doesn't represent, to quote unquote, today. Sounds like changing the rules to me. Mm, wait, okay, don't get me started. You know, Erica, no, <laughs> don't get me started. So, um, 2013, two provisions struck, deemed unconstitutional, and states, they were quick to act. Nine specifically, Alabama, Alaska, like, how many black people in the left? Never mind. Anyway, uh, Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia. They were previously covered, covered by those provisions. Like, they couldn't do squat with their um, voting laws without approval from the attorney general or from a court. Now that form is gone, they made changes, swift changes. There's also... Um, States like uh, California, some townships in California 
Florida, Michigan, New York, North Carolina, and South Dakota. Again, swift changes. The, the change was so sweeping, it created a ripple effect across the United States. So you got some states, you know, that immediately passed voter ID laws that online, um, online voter registration, same-day voter registration, pre-registration for teens that are about to turn 18, gone. Now, it's important that the ruling is unconstitutional. However, they said, you know, Congress, you come up with a new formula, we might put it back in. And I believe that we need to, I don't know if the Democrats just lost this little piece of history and they've forgotten 2013 what needs to happen, but at the end of the day, we continue to fight. We continue to fight for the right to vote without being stopped, delayed, um, impacted. We need unfettered access to being able to vote. And you know, we're still doing, we're still fighting today. And our federal government is actually doing, they, they just wash their hands of it until Congress comes up with something to put something back in front of the, the Supreme Court, which is never mind. Um, I'm just gonna talk about it. Supreme Court, which needs to <laughs> rerule um, and put a provision in place. So anyway, yeah. So people, this is why we need to vote. We can't be passive. This is important. Our lives depend on this. So we'll talk more about this, right, Yvette? Absolutely. This is not a one-part conversation. But we want to thank you for listening. And until next time. Bye, everybody. Peace out. Thank you for joining us today on this inaugural episode of the Melon and Pearls podcast. We know many of you, like us, are trying to figure out not only how you feel, but what to do about all of these changes happening. But also asking yourself what you actually want to do about it. The answer is unique to you and your experiences. But what we know for certain doing nothing and expecting change is not the option. Be heard and vote in order to create the change we are all hoping for. Let's take the anger and disappointment and turn it into something useful and maybe even hopeful. Thanks everyone for listening, until next time.